I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 to the end of the chapter. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. You may be seated. Thank you, Brian, for reading that. Uh, That is our text for today. Uh, But let me start with this. The 1985 John Hughes film, The Breakfast Club, uh, is one of my favorite films of all time. Any fans? It's it's usually on TBS 15 times a year uh, if you just want to catch up. Uh, But for those of you who haven't seen it, The basic plot is this. Five high school kids have to serve detention in a library in their high school for a a whole Saturday because of various, like, guideline infractions that they did at some point during the week. Things like uh, ditching school to go shopping. It's a great one. Uh, Someone pulled the fire alarm. There was hazing of a fellow student. One of them had a flare gun in his locker. Um, but that's sort of a sinister story that we won't get into today. And then my favorite one is uh, the character played by Ali Sheedy, whose name is Allison Reynolds. She's in detention, not because she did anything wrong, but simply because, quote, she was bored and she came uh, to the school for the day just to hang out in detention with all these great people. Uh, so that's, that's the basis of the movie. And, of course, they're all very different People. That's the point of all of these John Hughes films. They're all the same. A bunch of different people learning to respect one another and get along. And uh, to quote the movie itself, the, the, the descriptions of each of these five students are as follows. There is a brain, an athlete, a basket case, a princess, and of course, a criminal. And so the movie is this ongoing or unfolding story of these five teenagers learning about each other's lives, about what it would mean to be friends. There's even these emotional scenes where they're wondering whether or not they will still talk to each other uh, that coming Monday morning when they walk down the halls at school because otherwise these are not the kinds of people that would connect with each other. So the film holds out this sort of hope for a new kind of society where these people can get along. That's the hope of the film. Now there's a foil in the film, and his name is Richard Vernon. And Richard Vernon is the, the, the poor teacher who has been assigned the detention for that day. And uh, he doesn't want to be there. He has to babysit these kids all day Saturday. He's lost a Saturday to sit in the, in the school with these five students. And he really hates this. He kind of hates life the more you watch the movie. He hates what's going on. He hates having to be there. He hates his job. And he hates these kids. In fact, he never even sits in the room 
with the students. He just sits in a room uh, across the hall. But occasionally he comes in. He comes in when he hears too much noise. He comes in when they're acting up. He comes in when he thinks something's wrong. And he never comes in with any sense of, um, hey, just checking in on you guys. Do you need anything? Do you need to go to the bathroom? need some food, some water, anything to survive? It's nothing like that. He always comes in with a real bent towards uh, punishment. My favorite line of his is uh, there's this back and forth between him and the character named Bender, the criminal, and Bender just keeps racking up more detentions. And uh, Vernon says to him, I got you for the rest of your natural-born life if that's what you want. And so this is the kind of guy that Vernon is. And so the movie is part hope for a new kind of society, but it's really a two-hour movie of them praying and avoiding the possibility of Richard Vernon coming back into the library. Now, most of us have grown up in and around some sort of version of Christianity here in America where there's this idea that when Jesus comes back, it is to do nothing other than to settle the score. That's the version that we grew up with in this country and in other parts of the world as well, but it's quite dominant here uh, in America. When I was in high school, occasionally I would go to these things with my friends called uh, (laughs) the Tribulation Trail. (laughs) Anybody familiar with these? Now, I only went because like a girl would ask me to go, you know. I had no theological leanings whatsoever as to what I was about to walk through and experience as a uh, person. And so if you're, not, if you're unfamiliar with these, if you just sort of laughed because the rest of the room laughed, let me help you out. The tribulation trails, and they come under many names, but this is the one I remember. It's somewhere in a farm. There's woods and an open field, and there's all these teenagers that have to go through this reenactment of, I'm guessing, the most scary portions of the book of Revelation, um, which, by the way, is a genre of writing that we don't need to be reenacting as theology. Um, but nevertheless, you walk through scene after scene after scene, and it's all the same. It's basically Christ has come back, and he's really pissed, and you're all going to hell. And they have all the trappings that you would imagine at the end of time. There's sort of a Thunderdome feel with people going crazy and killing each other. There are also, and I don't know why, there are lots of people with chainsaws. I don't really understand the connection between the end times and people with chainsaws, but I guess that's going to be a thing, so uh, store up if if you're looking for something to do. But again, I would go through these with my friends, and you know, Plus, they had Nutter Butters at the end, and, uh, which is where you hear the gospel message. Did you guys, uh, were you afraid for your life? Were you afraid for your eternity? Would you like to put your faith in Jesus? And so on and so forth. You may have grown up with that kind of Christianity. Now, the church I went to as a kid didn't really talk a lot about the second coming, uh, didn't really have any sort of scary uh, lessons about that. But I think as an American and growing up in and around churches like that, we're all sort of familiar uh, with this idea. Just driving to Disney World, you can see all the billboards in Florida um, that are promising the return of Christ, who apparently comes back in an Apache helicopter, uh, <laughs> just fully armed and ready. 
But I think to be fair, this is how we tend to instinctively view people with authority anyway, whether it's social or professional or spiritual. There's some sense of if the person in charge shows up to what we're doing, it's going to be not for praise or just to check in, but to enact some sort of reckoning, some sort of punishment. So there's an anxiety there. I think about my favorite, it's a sticker, it's a shirt, it's everywhere, but Jesus is coming, so look busy. This is the idea that we have when we think about the coming of Christ again. There's this real sense of, I don't want to be caught off guard. Now, the question I want to ask you today, and the question that our passage wrestles with is, is this the reality that the Bible paints for us? Is this really what the Bible has to say about the coming again of Jesus. Today's passage deals with Christ's return. There's no question about that. And it's also connected to our passage from last week. These are not, uh, there he goes. The Bible, uh, the Bible was not written as, uh, you know, verse of the day calendar things with verses and numbers. This, these are These are letters, these are books, these are writings. And so this is all connected to what we talked about last week, which was this incredible phrase that the writer of the Hebrews uses to talk about Christ's work on the cross, which was that it was once for all, that the sins of the world were taken care of one time and never to be repeated again. Because again, the popular belief is that when Jesus returns, it's with a vengeance, But the writer gives a corrective, saying, in fact, actually, when Jesus died on the cross and went through all that he went through, it was a once-for-all experience. It's unrepeatable. In our text for today, in verse 26, it says, For then he would have had to suffer again and again since the foundation of the world. And it goes like this, But as it is, he has appeared, what's the phrase? Once for all, at the end of the age, to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself. Going down to verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. We should see that. But not to deal with sin or to bear sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting. Christ will return the writer says, but not to deal with sin. I want you to let that settle in your minds for a moment. Because I know that's not what you heard growing up. But the writer is saying very clearly, he will return, but not to deal with that, but to save, to bring salvation. Now, I know I'll get an email. Yeah, but the thing in Revelation, please don't quote Revelation. We tend to read the figurative figurative things literally and the literal things figuratively. And it's all based on the people we hate and what we think God should do to them. But the writer of Hebrews is saying so clearly, Christ will come again. And when he comes, it is not to deal with sin. That has been taken care of. And the question for you is, how different does that sound to your soul? That the coming of Christ is not to be feared in the sense that there will be vengeance, but that there will be salvation. 
That's the word the writer uses to save. Soteria is the word that he uses. This is not about heaven or hell. This is about a completion, a flourishing of God's creation. To come and repair what has been broken. To come and give life to the things that have died. The writer says unequivocally, Christ will come again. And it will not be for the reason that you think, but it will be for something better, to bring salvation to the world. There's a Jewish theology that's been around, and it transitioned into early Christianity without any resistance. And it is the Hebrew phrase, olam ha'aba, which means the world to come. At the very end of uh, the creeds of the church, we have the exact same Idea at the end of the Nicene Creed, it simply says, We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. This is a theology that a Jewish theology that transitioned into Christianity from the very beginning without any resistance, and it has to do with the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus for these early believers and followers of Jesus uh, was the ultimate event to signal that something greater is happening in the world. And something God is doing in the world should be paid attention to. And that the resurrection, again, was not on the radar of the disciples, by the way. Jesus is buried in the tomb, and the disciples are not like, just give it a few days. That's not what they're thinking. They're actually trying to figure out how to go back to their lives. And then Jesus raises from the dead and blows them away. And so they have to rework everything that they ever thought about what God was doing in the world. And the death that so clearly defines our world, the resurrection says it doesn't have the last word. Uh, Presbyterian theologian and scholar Frederick Buechner says about the resurrection, the resurrection tells us that the worst thing is not the last thing. That the worst thing, death, is not the last thing. That at the end of this life, something new happens. Something new takes place. And again, this is all throughout the scriptures. I want to read just a couple of uh, passages for you that you can just listen to as I read them. But in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 21, Paul says it this way, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation, that's earth, that's you and me, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. These are heavy, heavy words. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now I am going to read from Revelation, because I know how. (laughs) Just kidding. I've been trained. But the writer says, In chapter 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God will be with them, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. It's beautiful. And the Bible, in fact, begins this way in the very first creation story. I want to read, I have a little diagram for you. I draw this for my students, and they they like it. Uh, But you can see the pattern of the six, seven-day creation story. And uh, what we say in theology is that there is a day zero, which is painted for us in verses 1 through 3. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless. It was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while the wind of God swept over the face of the waters. That's a dark setting. If you read it slowly enough and in a light, a dimly lit room, it doesn't sound that warm. There's a sense of void and darkness. Chaos is the central theme here. That what God is doing in this story is beginning with something that's broken and chaotic. And the story goes day by day by day, building order and structure to life. And then it ends. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. And he blessed the seventh day and hallowed it because on it God rested from all the work he had done in creation. The movement of the creation story is towards rest. Very early in the Bible, we get these, um, these premonitions of eternity, that what God is doing with creation, what he is doing with our lives, is moving us from chaos to rest, from disorder to order. Now, one of the last things I want to show you in um, our text for today is verse 24. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made by human hands, and the writer says, a mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. If you're keeping score, um, well, let me say this first. All throughout the book of Hebrews, there's this comparison between what is better or greater or what is uh, less than that. In Jewish theology, it's the, it's, the, it's the understanding of what is heavier. What is heavier, life here or life after here? And so there's this, also this sense in the, writer, uh, in the writer's mind of the book of Hebrews of what we see Here on earth is a mere shadow or a copy, he says, a copy of the better thing. This is where the writer is quite platonic, that the things that we see in earth are yet just sketches of the better thing, that what we experience here is not the ultimate thing. We we get glimpses of the ultimate thing, but they are simply shadows or copies of the things that are to come. And the practices of our faith 
the writer is saying, when we go and make sacrifices, when we ask for forgiveness, when we love our neighbor, when we do all of these things, the writer is saying, they are not the ultimate thing. They are just simply shadows or earthbound drawings of the thing that is to come, the greater thing. It makes more sense to me when I say it this way. At times, you and I, we get to experience, we are blessed to stand in these shadows of things to come. Things like when we experience grace, from others. We are standing in the shadows of the things to come. When we experience love that is beyond the self, there's a lot of talk about the self these days. And the fear there is that we would trade, that the self would become greater. But when we experience love beyond the self, we're standing in that shadow of a thing to come. When we experience forgiveness, And I would say, as a challenge, when you forgive, then you stand in the shadows of the things to come. When there is healing, when there is equity, when there is justice, and when there is peace between enemies, these are all shadows of the things to come. When I talk about the miracles of Jesus, I have these categories for them. But one of them is that they are windows into the future. They are windows into a time that is coming when no one needs to be healed, when no one's blindness needs to be fixed, when no one's deafness needs to be fixed, when peace between enemies is possible. And one of the things I like to say about the church is that the calling on the church is to cast these shadows. The church casts shadows. It's always done that. And here in America, it's sometimes done a good job of that but sometimes it casts shadows of judgment and condemnation and vengeance. But the calling on the church is to cast these shadows and these earthbound sketches of the world that is to come. And this is where the application is coming in, so hang on. The calling of the church is to point to things and say, it won't always be that way. The way we understand scripture is that when I see that injustice, when I see that hatred, when I see this vitriol, when I see this enmity, that's not how it will always be. It feels like it. It feels like we can't manage it. But the scriptures tell a different story, which is those will not always be the case. The job of the church is to point to things when they do happen, these shadows of grace and of the world to come, and to say that is where the world is going. That is what God is doing. That is where God is taking history. I love the words in our benediction that we speak every week, right at the very end, and we'll say these together today at the end of the service. It's a prayer to God, and it says, send us now into the world in what? Peace. Not in judgment, not with all the rights and privileges of those who understand everything, but in peace. And that we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life of the world to come. So we need to do a better job of that. Just know that your life casts shadows. Your words, your actions, the way you run your business, 
the way you treat your spouse, the way you interact with your friends, the way you live online. We're all casting shadows. And the call on, it, on the church and on you and on me is that we would cast the shadows of the things to come, not always the things that are, and not with hatred and vitriol and frustration, but with hope. On the turning away From the pale and downtrodden And the words they say which we won't understand Don't accept that what's happening Is just a case of all the suffering Or you'll find that you're joining in the turning It's a sin that somehow Light is changing to shadow And casting its shroud away.